We have been in the uh, Gospel of Matthew for three months in chapters 24 and 25. Realize that? Three months for two chapters. Somebody do the math and figure out when we will finish the book. (laughs) Maybe the Lord will rescue us. Well, throughout the study of Matthew's 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, we have been repeatedly uh, making the statement that this section of Matthew's gospel concerns the nation of Israel. And in particular, those Israelites, those Jewish people that are alive at the time of the second coming of Christ. That the teaching that Jesus gives there in that section is not by first interpretation for the church. There are certainly many application points that uh, we can make. We have made some of them and there are certainly many more that could be made from that section. But that the instruction itself concerns the nation of Israel. Church is nowhere in view in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. So that raises an obvious question, and the question is, uh, what happens to the church? The church is not here in the text, if it's not mentioned in Matthew 24 and 25, if it's not addressed in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, then, then where is it addressed? What is the future of the church? What will become of the body of Christ made up of Jew and Gentile, drawn together in one body on equal footing, reconciled to their creator through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What happens to the church? That's the question that I want to begin to address this morning. We are going to finish our time in prophecy. As I said, we've been working for three months in chapters 24 and 25, and it has primarily concerned itself with the future events. But it wouldn't be finished, it wouldn't be complete, I think, if we didn't address the question of the the future destiny of the church. I know a number of people have questions. Some of you have asked them of me. I know that in the small groups that have been discussing these messages, that that topic has come up repeatedly, what happens to the church. And so we want to try to answer that question. And we're going to do it, uh, Lord willing, in a, in a series of three studies. So this morning and then two others. So three studies with regard to the destiny of the church, the future of the church. And then we are done with prophecy, at least for now. We will move on to other things. So it's probably uh, helpful to say right on the front end that in conformity with our doctrinal statement, of which if you are a member, you have read and presumably have understood and agreed to, and that is that we believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. That is what we believe the Word of God teaches In other words, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ himself will descend from the right hand of the Father 
and he will call to himself all those who are his, and he will take them to be with him in the Father's house. And there they will avoid the horrors of the tribulation, that seven-year period of time, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Now, to, to set the context, let's do it with a, with a chart. And so I have a, a chart here. I've used this chart with you before, but I'm, I'm just referring back to it. And again, some of you have said charts are very, very helpful for you. And so I put this chart back up here and, and I do it to just sort of lay out a road map for you. So you kind of know where we're going. So we're dealing with this event right here called the rapture of the church. That is the descent of Christ to come and to take to himself his children, those who are his, uh, his followers, both Jew and Gentile, to take them with him back to the Father's house and that they might then avoid this seven-year period of time known as the tribulation. Tribulation itself is drawn to a close at the second coming of Jesus Christ as is detailed for us in Revelation chapter 19 and other places. Following the return of Christ, of course, is the thousand-year kingdom, the millennial kingdom, and following the millennial kingdom is the new heavens and the new earth of which we read about a little bit this morning in Revelation chapter 22. So that's the general overall um, scheme, as it were, of earth history yet to be unfolded. Now, it's important to say this, I think, as we begin, that the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, like many other doctrinal understandings or doctrinal distinctives, is not proven or disproven on a single verse of Scripture. There is no verse of Scripture that says that Jesus will come before the tribulation and will take his church to be with himself and back into heaven, and then that would settle the issue for any and all people. There is no such silver bullet verse. Consequently, there are many good people, good, faithful, Christian people, Bible-believing people who don't see it that way, who do not understand the Scriptures in that fashion. They would say, for example, that Jesus comes perhaps halfway through the tribulation period to receive the church to himself. Or perhaps he comes at the end of the tribulation period to receive the church to, to himself. Or, or others who would even go so far as to say that there is no tribulation period, no millennial kingdom, that the second coming of Christ ushers in the eternal state itself. So there are all of those positions out there. They're held by very good and capable people. And I'm, it's not my point to try to, to interact with each and every one of them and to dispute with each and every one of them. We would be here forever and we would be lost. So what we are going to do here is that we are going to build a case for the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. As I said, there is no single scripture passage that, it, that proves it conclusively. If there were then there wouldn't be differences of opinion, obviously. But when you consider all of the evidence, all of the evidence, when you pursue the scriptures, 
in a literal, historical, grammatical means of interpretation, when you, when you allow the Bible to speak for itself from reading it from left to right and not right to left, that is not interpreting the Old Testament in light of the New, but allowing the Old Testament to speak for itself, the progress of revelation, a building of a case much like the assembly of a jigsaw puzzle, when you put it all together... We are convinced that the pre-tribulational rapture of the church best fits the evidence, has the least problems. It doesn't mean there are no problems with this view. It doesn't mean that there aren't some verses that are difficult, to be sure. But there is no verse that is fatal to this understanding. And there are many, many, many verses, as I hope to show you, that when put together, produce what is, in our opinion, the best understanding. So, with that as our preamble, let us begin the study together. All right? So, Revelation chapters 6 through 19. Don't turn there. Just listen. Revelation chapters 6 through 19 detail a time of unprecedented horror upon this planet. It is the time when God himself pours out his judgment upon those who have refused the gracious offer of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a time, the scripture teaches, that lasts for a period of seven years. During this seven years, God unleashes upon the planet in a series of ever-increasing intensity, a series of judgments that the book of Revelation explains as seals, trumpets, and bowls. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. We have said before, as we have looked at this, that the seventh uh, seal contains the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls. And so by the time you get to the seventh seal, there is an increasing uh, rapidity and, and intensity to the, to the judgments that are poured out upon the earth. We believe the scripture teaches that the church, that is the body of Christ, that is those who are in Christ Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, will not suffer through that terrible time, but will be delivered from it, out of it, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The deliverance is called the rapture. That that deliverance, that activity of deliverance is called, that event of deliverance is called the rapture. It comes from a Latin word, raptoro, which is a, a, a translation of a Greek word, harpazo, which means to seize to catch up, or to snatch away. So, the word rapture is a Latin term, and it means to seize, to catch up, or to snatch away. That is what the word rapture means. The concept of the rapture is that of a sudden and irresistible catching away of the church. And it is called by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
verses 51 and 52, a mystery. It is called a mystery. That is, that it is something that was previously unknown until it has been revealed by God through his apostles. It has no parallel in the Old Testament. It, has, it, it is something that was hidden from those Old Testament saints. It has only been revealed in the New Testament. And it could only be revealed as a result of the offer of the kingdom by the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Israel refused, crucified their Messiah, God raised him from the dead, and God began a work in this world among Jew and Gentile alike called the church. So, what I want to do beginning this morning and for the next three or two weeks is to look at ten reasons. Our outline is simple. Ten reasons why we believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture. Ten reasons why we believe and teach that the church of Jesus Christ will be snatched up, caught away, taken away by Christ before the tribulation period. So here they are. Reason number one. We believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture because it best preserves the doctrine of imminence. It best preserves the doctrine of imminence. The English word imminent is from a Latin verb and it means to overhang or to project. Imminence means that something is overhanging or something is projecting out over In the English, it carries the idea of hanging over one's head. Something is hanging over your head. It is an imminent thing. It means ready to overtake. It means close at hand. That is what imminence means. Something is hanging over us. Something is ready to overtake us. Something is close at hand. Close at hand in the sense that it could occur at any time. It could overtake us at any time. That's what it means to be eminent. Other things may occur first, but nothing must occur before the event happens or it is no longer imminent. You understand that distinction? It is hanging over us. It could happen at any moment. Nothing must precede it. Many things may precede it, but nothing necessarily must precede it in order to preserve the understanding of imminence. Imminence does not mean shortly. An imminent event is not something that will happen shortly. Because if you say that something will happen shortly, then that implies a a time period for the event to occur, and thus you have lost imminence. Do you understand? In order for it to be imminent, nothing must precede it. Many things may, nothing must There is no time component associated with it at all. Well, that's all well and good, but is that what the Bible teaches? The answer is yes. That is exactly what the Bible teaches. It is the record of the New Testament. It is the record of a belief in eminency, and it is everywhere in the New Testament. So, now I will take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51. And I will show you a few verses 
Again, we're not going to take, I don't want to take the whole time on one reason. You can do your own study on the doctrine of imminence, and you can add to the verses that I will share with you this morning. But I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, where the apostle writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Paul says, I'm telling you a mystery. Something that was previously unknown now has been revealed to me. What I want you to see here is that how he includes himself in this statement. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. Paul's expectation is the return of Christ for him. He believes and hopes that Christ will return for him. Now, obviously, that did not happen. There are many things that that happened And Paul, Christ did not return for his church in the lifetime of Paul. Yet Paul's hope, Paul's belief was that he, they would be snatched to be with Christ. That they would be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5. He says, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10 to the church at Thessalonica. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. One sign of the conversion of these Gentiles in Thessalonica is that they turned to wait, and it's an active waiting to wait for the Lord. The expectation the Lord would return. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Where Paul says there, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Looking for the blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? It is the return of Christ for his church. James chapter 5 and verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The judge is standing right at the door. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. When he appears. Revelation chapter 22. 
Revelation chapter 22 and verse 7. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. The New Testament church lived with the understanding and the hope of the return of Christ for the church as an imminent event. When Jesus rose from the dead, returned to the right hand of the Father, he initiated the age to come. The age to come. And from that moment forward, the age to come can burst into this remnant of this age at any moment. At any moment. From God's perspective, the date of the return of Christ is fixed. Someone asks, how do you reconcile the fact that it, that, you know, it could be any moment, Paul thinks any, you know, my lifetime, any time, with the reality that here we are 2,000 years later. Well, I would say from the perspective of God, the time and the date of the return of Christ is a fixed thing. Acts chapter 1, verse 7, the angel said to them, or Jesus said to them, rather, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. They want to know, is it now you're going to restore the kingdom? Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time that the Father has fixed. There is a fixed point in time for the return of Christ. So it's fixed in God's perspective, but from the human perspective, it could be at any time. At any time. And if any or all, any part of the tribulation has to occur before the return of Christ for his church, then the doctrine of imminency has been destroyed. There is now something that must occur first. And that destroys the doctrine of imminency. So the first reason we believe and teach the pre-tribulational rapture is because it best preserves the doctrine of imminence. Okay? Number one. Number two. We believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture of the church because it provides comfort to the church. It provides comfort to the church. So go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is one of the preeminent texts with regard to the rapture of the church. This is definitely one that is speaking to it. The dominant theme of this section of Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning of verse 13 through the end of the chapter 18, the dominant theme is comfort. This passage is about comfort. Look at verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, it is not a comfort with regard to a general resurrection from the dead, but it is a comfort that comes from the reality that the Lord will come and will snatch away his own people. Verse 17. So let me read this passage for you. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That's a euphemism for died. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. By the way, I always find it um, encouraging to me that Paul's writing here to the church at Thessalonica, which is a very young assembly of believers, a place where Paul himself uh, only spent a short amount of time evangelizing and, and uh, teaching the word of God to these people. We're told in Acts it was only three Sabbaths. It probably was longer than that, maybe as much as six months, no more than that. And how much uh, prophecy and eschatology, end time events, Paul got into with a brand new church. I always find that encouraging because people say, well, this is too confusing. I can't understand this stuff. This is for people who have been Christians for their whole lives. The answer is no, it's not. It's actually for brand new believers, as Paul himself demonstrates. Anyway, editorial comment. Here we are. This is about comfort. This is a comfort passage. Now follow me. Reason with me on this. If the prospect for the believers at Thessalonica who are... uh, is that they're going to go through seven years of intense suffering in what one commentator called the purifying fires of the tribulation, then Paul's promise to them seems a very doubtful source of hope or comfort. If things are bad and you're already in tribulation, notice uh, chapter 1, verse 6, You become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. This church is already suffering. What kind of encouragement would it be to say to them, hey, I know that you're really suffering, but but be comforted. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And then Christ is going to take care of you. If that were true then those who have died are better off. Wouldn't you say? Because Paul says to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, is to be present with the Lord. If I wanted to comfort people that were in much suffering, and I knew that the suffering was going to get worse, and some of them had died, I would say, be comforted that your loved ones have passed. They've missed out. They're not going to have to go through what you go through. The comfort here only makes good sense if what he is saying to them is, listen, it's bad now, yes. And it's going to get worse, yes. But Jesus is coming to take you from this. And those loved ones of yours who have already died, don't worry. They're not going to miss out on the resurrection. They are going to join you. Actually, they're going to precede you in the resurrection. And that together you will be with the Lord. That's comforting. That's comforting. So the second reason we believe that the pre-tribulational rapture of the church is the best understanding of the scriptures is because it provides real and legitimate 
comfort to the church, particularly the suffering church. Third, first, because it best preserves the doctrine of imminence. Secondly, because it provides comfort to the church. Thirdly, we believe and teach the pre-tribulational rapture because Christians are not destined for wrath. Third reason, because Christians are not destined for wrath. Same book, chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is not like human wrath, human anger. It is not uncontrolled. It is not irrational. The wrath of God is a, is a settled, passionate anger of the Creator against sin among His creatures. He is absolutely furious with sin and sinners, and he will punish, and he will punish. Now, according to the scripture, the wrath of God against sin and sinners is most fully and completely expressed in a place called the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20. The lake of fire, commonly known as hell. Commonly known as hell. That is the place where the wrath of God is poured out in its fullest extent. But the wrath of God is temporarily poured out upon the earth's inhabitants during the seven years of tribulation. It is the beginning of the outpouring of the wrath of God upon the planet in disobedience to him. It begins with the breaking of the seven seals laid out in Revelation chapter 6. They are the horsemen, right? The, The four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we looked at them some weeks ago. I don't remember how many now. But the breaking of the seal releases one of the horsemen of the apocalypse, and with it, it begins the begin, or brings the beginning of the wrath of God. Now, it is poured out initially through human agency. Agreed. Later, it becomes direct in the sense there's no intermediary, no human agency. But initially, yes, it is through human agency. The first seal unleashes the Antichrist himself. But that doesn't make it not the wrath of God. That doesn't mean it's not the wrath of God. And I think the best analogy would be that God brought wrath and judgment upon his people Israel through the agency of the Babylonians. They were his rod of judgment. So God does use agents and he uses human agents at times to pour forth his wrath, which is merely a down payment, which is merely an expression of the greater and more terrifying wrath that awaits any and everyone who refuses the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, God has not destined us For wrath, that is not our future. It is not our future. We will not end up in the lake of fire. 
But I would like to suggest to you that beyond that, that we are not destined for wrath, we are not destined for final and eternal wrath, and we are not destined for the temporal wrath that, that is the down payment and illustration of the greater wrath to come. That does not mean, however, that the church is exempt from trial and persecution. And we shouldn't confuse the two. There is one thing to have the wrath of God brought upon us. It is another thing to be tried and persecuted by unbelievers. And the history of the church of Jesus Christ says that the church has always been persecuted. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will be persecuted. Persecution, affliction, as the Thessalonians were going through, is not the same as the wrath of God. They are not to be confused. Now, I think there is a fallacy that has developed, uh, certainly within the American church, that somehow the American church is going to continue a prosperous, healthy, and happy middle-class lifestyle right up until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and raptures us. Right? It's just going to be good. You're gonna, I'm going to have a, a happy marriage. I'm going to have healthy and happy children. And, and I'm going to enjoy my house and my two-and-a-half-car garage and on and on, you know, I'm just going to really be living the American dream. Everything's going to be good. The world is, is disintegrating all around me, but it's all good because Jesus is going to save us from it. That's not a good idea. It's not a good idea to think like that. In fact, I would say it's contrary to the scriptures. And maybe some of what's going on in the world today is, uh, is um, an opportunity for us to recalibrate our thinking. The likelihood is, is that the church will suffer persecution. It always has. Paul says that to, to pursue a, a, a godly life in Christ Jesus engenders persecution. It doesn't mean every single Christian will always and everywhere and in every case be persecuted, clearly. But it means the trajectory and pattern of the church of Jesus Christ is that of one of persecution. Why? Because they hate Christ and they can't get at him, but they can get at us. And so we should expect, we should not be surprised that the world does not welcome us. It does not roll out the red carpet for us. It does not uh, like us. And in fact, just the opposite, it hates us. So we will be persecuted. But that's not wrath of God. That's not the wrath of God. So what does the future look like? I have the foggiest idea. I can guess. My guess would be is that the bubble has exploded or popped or however you like. And it's going to be different. It's going to be different. Maybe our pilgrim status will be a little more clear to us. But we believe and teach the pre-tribulation or rapture of the church because Christians are not destined for wrath. And the tribulation is the down payment on the eschatological end times wrath of God. Okay? And we are not destined for that. Fourth. We believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture because of distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. 
because of distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. Now, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, we've spent plenty of time there, right? That's a prophetic passage in which Jesus answers two specific questions. Two specific questions, verse 2 of Matthew chapter 24, that his disciples have raised with him in response to his statement. I'm sorry, in uh, verse 3, he makes a statement in verse 2. They raise the question in verse 3. Jesus has made a statement about the temple being destroyed, right? He said to them, verse 2, chapter 24, do you not see all these things? He's pointing to to the temple. Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Verse 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, two questions, when will these things be? First question. Second question, what will be the sign of your coming into the end of the age? So, two questions. When will these things be? In other words, when will the temple be destroyed? First question. When will the temple be destroyed? Second question, what will be the sign of your coming into the end of the age? In other words, What will be the beginning of the millennial kingdom, which is associated with the age to come? What will be the sign of that? Now, as we looked at this together, we noted that Jesus' answer to the first question, Matthew does not record. The answer to the first question is recorded in Luke chapter 21. Go ahead and just continue to remind you, like Peter says, it's good for you and it doesn't bother me. So... Uh, Luke 21, beginning in verse 12, running all the way to verse 24, is a parenthesis. In particular, verse 20, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by enemies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babes in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath unto this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That is the answer to the first question. When will the temple be destroyed? Jesus says it will come in your lifetime. It will come in your lifetime. Matthew chapters 24 and 25 make up his answer or or are his answer to the second question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It deals with the tribulation period and the second coming of Christ to draw that tribulation period to an end. So as we carefully compare the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus, as he outlines in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, with what Paul reveals with regard to the rapture of the church, there are a number of similarities to be sure. But there are a number of significant differences. And beloved, all there has to be is one difference for them to not be an identical event. Do you understand that? There can be many, many similarities. All it takes is one difference, and then you know it's not the same event. 
But there are more than one differences. There are a number of differences. And together, and we'll look at them here in a minute, together, not all of them, but just a few, uh, together these differences compel us to understand that the second coming of Christ as outlined in Matthew 24 and 25 and the rapture of the church as outlined by Paul, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 to 18, are not the same event. Okay, so here they are. Let's take a look. And by the way, I should acknowledge this. This doesn't prove a pre-tribulational rapture. I, I grant that. But what it does is disallow a post-tribulational rapture. You understand that? It can't be the return of Christ for his church at the end of the tribulation because that would mean that the second coming and the, and the coming to receive his church to himself would have to be the same event at the same time. And I'm going to show you that they're not the same event and thus cannot be at the same time. Therefore, the rapture of the church cannot follow the tribulation. This doesn't prove that it precedes it, I grant you. It proves it can't follow it. And I believe is best explained by preceding it. All right, so here we are, differences. At the rapture, according to Paul, Christ comes in the air and returns to heaven. So 1 Thess 4, verse 17. Get there. Verse 4, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Hang on to that thought. And I want to just uh, take, draw your attention to John chapter 14 and verse 3. I'll pick it up in verse 1. This is on the night of his betrayal. He's in the upper room. John 14, beginning verse 1, Jesus says to his disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus comes in the clouds, it says, catches up the church to be with himself in the air at the rapture. At the second coming, back to Matthew chapter 25, what I want you to see is at the second coming, verse 31, Jesus comes to earth to dwell and reign there. Verse 31, Matthew chapter 25, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them as one separates, a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So you understand that the rapture Christ comes and receives the church to meet Him in the sky and returns to be in the Father's house. The second coming, he crumbs to the earth. There establishes his kingdom. There he reigns and rules. There he dwells. Beyond that, at the rapture, notice that Christ gathers his own. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 again. Probably a good idea to keep your thumb there, I guess, huh? 
Verses 16 and 17, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. Here's what I want you to see. And the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. The expression in Christ is a technical term coined by the Apostle Paul that refers only to the body of Christ. It is only the church that is in Christ. That is in Christ. We are placed, we are baptized, we are immersed, we are plunged into the body of Christ at the moment of redemption by the baptizing work of the Spirit of God. Okay? 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We are, we are baptized in the Spirit. We are plunged into the body of Christ. We become in Christ. So Christ gathers his own, those in Christ. At the second coming, conversely, the angels are sent out to gather the elect who have been scattered because of the tribulation all over the earth, right? Uh, verse 31, Matthew 24 He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. The context here is the tribulation. You go back to verse 15 of chapter 24, where he talks about the abomination of desolation. At the midpoint of the tribulation, he tells Israel to run, to hide, right, to flee to the desert, and so forth. We looked at all of that in pretty good detail. All right, so in one... There is the gathering of the elect, and as I told you there, the elect here in context of Matthew has to be seen as the elect of Israel, the believing remnant of Israel, that are gathered together as he establishes his throne. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it is the in Christ peoples, both dead and alive, who are raised to, uh, to be with Christ, and thus they will be with him always. All right, so there's a difference in the events. Third, Uh, At the rapture, the believers depart from the earth. And so, in a moment of time, there are only unbelievers left on the earth. Do you understand this? All the in Christ people depart from the earth. They are caught up to meet the Lord in the sky. At that moment in time, there are only unbelievers left on the earth. So, the unbelievers are taken, excuse me, the believers are taken from from among the unbelievers. At the second coming of Christ, it's the opposite. The unbelievers are taken out from among the believers. And only believers remain on the earth to enter into Messiah's kingdom. Chapter 24, verse 37 and following. Well, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days... Uh, Before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be two men in the field, one taken, one left. Two women grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. Taken where? Taken in judgment. Taken away in judgment. So, uh, you can look at 2534, right? Come, you who are... Uh, Blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Verse 41, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire. So there's a different uh, set of people on the planet. At the rapture, the believers are taken away and only unbelievers remain. At the second coming, the the, uh, unbelievers are taken away and only believers remain. Two different events. Jesus illustrates 
the difference here in his parables in Matthew 13. Remember that? Matthew 13. The parable that tears among the wheat. Verse 30. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 40. So, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. At the end of the age, the second coming of Christ, the unbelievers will be taken out and burned. The lake of fire. The parable of the dragnet, verse 48. Verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. They sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The second coming of Christ, the wicked will be removed. At the rapture, the return of Christ, the rapture is church. The the believing, the, the righteous will be removed. They are two separate events. They're two separate events. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. Great. So, that's four. There are ten. Right? That's four. Four reasons why we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. It best preserves the doctrine of imminency. It provides comfort to the church, particularly the church in its afflictions. Three, Christians are not destined for wrath. And the tribulation is the wrath of God. Fourth, because of the distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. They cannot be the same event. So for those four reasons and six more that we will elaborate in the coming two weeks, Lord willing, we will build our case. So, here's the money question. Are you ready? Are you ready? If the rapture of the church is an imminent event, meaning it could occur at any moment, you live every day, every moment, you live under the reality, we live under the reality that the Lord could return. And when he returns and, and raptures his church to himself, at that moment, all who are left on earth will enter into the horrors of the tribulation. Some will be saved in the tribulation, to be sure. Some will be saved. Many will be saved and martyred. But, beloved, we should never presume upon the grace of God. That's why the Apostle Paul will say that while the opportunity presents itself, give yourself to Jesus Christ. Commit your life to Christ. Paul says, today is the day of salvation, right? Today is the day. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not after I'm done doing the things that I want to do, you know, to live my life the way I want to live it, and then, you know, I'll get around to God. The fuse is lit. 
It's burning. We have no idea when it hits the powder keg. But it could be today. Are you ready? Are you ready? May God, through his spirit, help you to answer that question sincerely. And if you're not, now's the time to do something about it. Flee to the cross of Christ. Call out to him to save you. Beg him to save your soul. And may God have mercy on you. Father, the scriptures, your word, detail a time of unimaginable, unspeakable horror. A time when the population of this planet, the vast majority of it, will suffer in the most incredible and and horrific ways. as you pour out your righteous judgment upon those who have opposed you, shaken their fist in your face, spit and tread upon your Savior. And our Father, they deserve it. Our Father, we deserve it. Our only hope lies in Christ that he took the wrath of God. He took your wrath. He drank the cup of your wrath to the final drop. Not one drop remains. When he said, it is finished, redemption was accomplished. The penalty had been paid. And it's available to us if we will but believe. God, may you work in us. May you work in the hearts and minds of men and women, boys and girls. To take seriously what your word says about this impending reality. May you break through the silliness of our culture. The moronic attempts at at amusement that we engage in. We fiddle as Rome burns when we ourselves may be part of the fire. O Lord, have mercy on our souls. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.